Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The Reverend C.T. Vivian died last week at his home in Atlanta. He was 95. Vivian was a member of Martin Luther King Jr.'s inner circle. He was described as a, quote, field general for King in the 1960s. He led sit-ins at lunch counters, boycotts of businesses, and marches. And he was jailed, beaten, and at one point nearly killed. Vivian was born in Boonville, Missouri, and he grew up in Macomb, Illinois. He actually organized his first protest in Peoria. And joining us today to talk about his life and his legacy is Vernon Mitchell, Jr. He's a lecturer in American Culture Studies at Washington University. Vernon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Glad to be here. Now, you tweeted last week, the loss of the Reverend C.T. Vivian Hertz. He was one of the reasons I wanted to become a historian. I feel like for so many of us, C.T. Vivian kind of flew under the radar. How did you first learn about him? So uh, I first learned about um, uh, the Reverend C.T. Vivian as a kid. Um, It was um, Henry Hampton's Eyes and the Prize uh, documentary series, the Seminoles, you know, kind of uh, foundational engagement with the civil rights movement, that I was introduced to uh, Reverend Vivian and the rest of these historical actors, if you will. So you were uh, a kid. Um, did you end up yeah. coming back to that then later in life? Right. That, that's what happened. I mean, I didn't know what his name was then, but uh, when I was in college, um, I took a course uh, on the Black Freedom Movement that was taught by Professor Carol Anderson, and she reintroduced these historical actors to us. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a engagement with uh, C.T. Vivian and a, a sheriff by the name of um, Jim Clark in, in Selma, Alabama, that forever stuck with me. Uh, he, it was it just captivated me. You wrote, you wrote in this tweet that this remains one of the most inspiring moments of the civil rights movement. This was in Selma in 1965. I want to play a clip of the Reverend C. T. Vivian speaking at that point. But but set the scene for us. What was happening there on the day that he spoke? So the day that this is happening, um, it's lightly raining. Um, Reverend Vivian has about a hundred protesters with him. Uh, or, you know, followers that are trying to register to vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the moment in Jim Crow, in the Jim Crow South, where you have uh, poll taxes and all other types of voter suppression tactics that are being used. Um, Reverend Vivian and the SCLC, the Southern Christian uh, Leadership Conference, they knew the type of person they were dealing with in Sheriff Clark, Mm -hmm. and they knew they would get some kind of response. And Dr. King knew that Vivian was the man for the job. He was the leader that he wanted there if the cameras were there. So ABC happened to be there, and they, they captured this entire encounter. And, the, and what about day. him made him the man for the job in Dr. King's eyes? His ability to uh, stay calm and cool under pressure. Hmm. Uh, when people see him, many people always remark about his smile. And... Uh, he was a warm spirit, but hit the other side of that is that he was that committed to justice and and to freedom, uh, and he was able to articulate it in a way that was compelling, that was gripping, that you know kind of changed the air in the room or even outside, you know, around him. So people either 
marched with him eventually, or they got into a physical confrontation because he made them uncomfortable. So a great example of that. Let's listen to Vivian's words from that day. Again, this is Selma, 1965. He's there on the courthouse steps. You can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back upon the idea of justice. You can turn your back now and you can keep the club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. And we will register to vote because as citizens of these United States, we have the right to do it. And that is the Reverend C.T. Vivian. What impact did that oration have? For me, you know, it, it changed everything. I wanted to know more about uh, him and, and more about these people and the, and the kind of courage and composure. I, I wondered, could I do that? You know, what I, I didn't know about these stories because we're kind of, you know, inundated with this kind of Dr. King mantra or like this kind of... Uh, mono like leadership model and it's not there were a lot of people there were a lot of ct vivians around um and and that moment watching that as a college undergraduate i decided i didn't want to go to med school i want to tell these stories because i want my my kids and other generations to understand what had been done to ensure that we had a democracy Right. And what we need to do as inheritors of that, that flame of of justice and of freedom. So as you say, this wasn't a one man movement, even though that's sort of how it's been. uh, The reductionist history goes today. And and Vivian is an interesting figure to me because he was a Midwesterner. Um, How did he end up getting involved with Dr. King and and this movement that he was leading? Yeah. So, uh, uh, Reverend Vivian is is from Boonville, right? I think you said mentioned that already. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born in uh, 1928. I think his birthday, 1924, his uh, birthday's coming up, 28th. And uh, I think when he was six or so, they moved to Macomb, Illinois, uh, and then he would go to Peoria, and that's where between Macomb and Peoria is where he starts to get active. He starts to get involved in 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 uh, and movement um, around uh, sit-ins, right, for lunch counters mm-hmm. uh, that are happening. Because he's not far from, from Chicago, so those interactions are taking place with other civil rights uh, leaders at the same time. And they have a great influence on them. But they kind of happen, and that's kind of it. There's no, like, longer trajectory for him. But by the time he's introduced to Dr. King in 1963 and becomes part of his executive staff, he has been, he's like a well-oiled machine by this point. Hmm. He's been through all types of trainings and, and things of this nature around nonviolent direct action. Um, and he also was a theologian, right? He had been to seminary in Nashville. So he was ready uh, and had been equipped to do this fight and goes back to what you said before or asking before, like why King had him as a field general, because he knew what to do. Hmm. And you needed people in those situations to keep calm heads to make sure that the people who had assembled to, to support whatever action was taking place w- would not be put unnecessarily in harm's way. Though they knew by in being involved in these movements and these actions that something could potentially happen. 
Hmm. Now, it's interesting. Last week, uh, when the Reverend C.T. Vivian died, Representative John Lewis also died within hours of that. And it, yeah. it was fascinating to think they're almost in different generations. In 1965, John Lewis was a very young man. And as you say, uh, the Reverend Vivian was well into middle age. What do you think gave him the physical courage to face beatings and apparently even a near drowning um, when people came after him on a beach? It, as a middle-aged person myself, you become so much more aware of your own mortality, your own fragility. It's it's interesting mm-hmm. he was willing to put his body on the line. Yeah, and, and um, he, he's spoken about this, he, or he spoke about this before. Um, and I think the thing is, is that he was totally imbued and consumed by his faith, mm-hmm. right? Not just simply religion, but a faith. There is a part of him that because of his theological training, that he's an intellectual as well, right? And at some point there's a higher calling to how they engage the systems and the system of beliefs. And if it can't actualize itself in the real world, manifest itself, why am I doing this? And so I, I think to, to understand him, you know, he was never consumed by fear uh, as, as most other people would be. Uh, some of the, I think it's just his temperament. Hmm. He would, you know, he would smile, and he talks about when he was in St. Augustine of Florida, when that guy jumped on his back, and and he thought he was gonna die. He said he kind of laughed. He could feel his face in the sand, and this is it. I'm not going to another protest after this because this is gonna be it for me. And uh, there happened to be a police officer that pulled the young white man off of him, and you know they brought him back to the to the beach. This is a wade-in um, that happened, uh, I think, a year before uh, the, the Selma uh, uh, situation occurred. But I think to really understand him in a very real sense, he was like the embodiment of like the New Testament scripture uh, in the second epistle of Paul to Timothy, for God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. And I'm not saying that to create this kind of hagiographic uh, graphic like mentioning of him but he really really believed that that was who he was at his core so fear just really never had a place for him hmm. it's just remarkable to think about that and uh, we're talking today about the life of the reverend ct vivian with vernon mitchell jr he's a lecturer in american culture studies at washington university and vernon you mentioned earlier this eyes on the prize this is um a, a remarkable documentary looking at the civil rights movement. And now the outtakes from that and the footage that they didn't use are all part of the Henry Hampton Film Archive at Washington University. And C.T. Vivian's interview is more than an hour. But one part that really struck us in listening back to it yesterday is the part where Vivian explains the serious preparation that went into being ready for nonviolence. What to do, how to do something was the problem, how to get it underway. When Jim Lawson came to the city, he began to organize students, right? And most important to that for both students and we who were ministers was that we had workshops. And the workshops in nonviolence made the difference. We began to first understand the theory, understand the philosophy behind it, the great religious imperatives that were important in terms of understanding people. Then finally, the tactics, and finally, the techniques, how to, in fact, uh, uh, begin to take the blows, cigarettes put out on you, uh, the fact that you're being spit on and still, still respond with some sense of dignity and with a loving concept of what you were about. 
to be hit and to be knocked down and uh, to understand that in terms of struggle and in terms of reaching conscience, in terms of, of gaining the greater goals for what you saw. Now, we actually done that. I mean, we actually beat people to the ground. We actually poured coffee on people. We actually uh, 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 did the various things to people, kicked chairs out from under them, right? Uh, came on them in a crowded situation so they could begin to get used to it. How did they respond? So they could begin to understand and respond, not in terms of verbiage, but in terms of actuality. You see, it's in the action that ethics is tested. And this is one of the great learnings of nonviolent movement. That's the Reverend C.T. Vivian. And so this idea of being nonviolent, we might think of it as just being passive, but there was so much more to it. There was so much work that went into it. These workshops just sound like incredibly tough things. Did all that work pay off? I, I think so. Uh, and he would say so as well. Uh, I think he kind of laments in our current moment uh, before his death um, that the type of training that they submitted themselves to, that they committed themselves to, wasn't happening after uh, King's assassination. Hmm. Um, you lose that cadre that capacity to to do those things uh, most of those people that were involved with him remained active well into present day the ones who are still living um, but there are no organizations that kept that type of sophisticated and nuanced training um uh, you know over the decades mm-hmm. and, and you know it's, it's hard to do um so yeah i think he would say it definitely helped because he felt that if he could take that was the only way to combat a society of violence was to be nonviolent, right? Mm-hmm. That there was only, and not just a passivity, just like, well, we're here to be, to be beaten by police or, or the state, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But there was training involved to give, um, a, 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 as a method to engage, it was a tactic, right? And I, I think he would say that, uh, it was effective and it, and it had results, mm-hmm. right? And there are people that can give really, really great speeches that can be awe-inspiring, but at some point you have to do the work. And if the work's not getting done, right, you, you don't have a Voting Rights Act. You don't have a Civil Rights Act without those things that were occurring in the South. Um, and, and this is an, an opportunity, I, I think, to for, for Reverend Vivian, right, to, to be our better selves, but to be our better selves, it's going to require work, it's going to require sacrifice, and he had that. Mm-hmm. He put himself on the line. Exactly. We heard from a couple of listeners, we, we asked people if they had memories of this man who had uh, these roots in Missouri and, and in Illinois. We actually got an amazing email this morning from our listener, Joshua Weesey, and he shared a remembrance from his mother, Sherry Price. It involves Joshua's grandmother. And Sherry says, my mother went to grade school through high school in the 1930s with Reverend Vivian in Macomb, Illinois, where schools were surprisingly integrated. When our family moved from Peoria to Nashville, mother read 
in the paper that C.T. lived in Nashville and was organizing sit-ins at lunch counters. She found C.T.'s number, and within a few weeks, he and his wife, Octavia, were having the first of several dinners at our home. We kids thought they were the most exciting people we'd ever met. I had no idea what the hushed conversations around the dining table were about. I just knew they were serious. Mrs. Vivian at one point told my mother that they had to be careful talking on the phone because theirs had been tapped. Still, we visited their home and they continued to come to ours. Daddy and C.T. would have long conversations about politics and religion over coffee and Winston's. Mother was still a bit in awe of her high school friend who was now studying to be a minister and the local leader in the civil rights movement. Our neighbors weren't as excited and wouldn't let their children, our friends, come to play at our house because black people had drank out of our glasses and eaten off our plates. We didn't understand it, but we knew it made mother and daddy angry. The neighbors would have been really upset if they knew daddy participated in the sit-ins. And Sherry continues that her mother lost track of C.T. later. Um, She adds, but she loved telling the stories of that handsome young man she grew up with who was whip smart and admired for his leadership even in high school. To this day, she writes, I believe meeting Reverend Vivian was one of the most influential experiences of my life. And also, Richard Egan writes on Facebook, he writes, I attended an annual Martin Luther King Day breakfast at the NGA in January of 2004, less than one year after the invasion of Iraq. Dr. C.T. Vivian was the guest speaker. Knowing that the NGA was supporting the war in Iraq did not mute his anti-war stance. Vivian told the audience, War will not lead to peace. We've been trying to win peace through war for a long time, and it hasn't worked yet. As I took note of his words, I observed several agency executives bow their heads. And so this is even in 2004. This man is, is speaking truth to power. Um, but I, I have to think, Vernon, it's it's interesting. It does seem like he had somewhat faded into the background by the time he got this Medal of Freedom in 2013 from President Barack Obama. Um, why do you think that was? Well, I, I think unlike um, more iconic figures, Angela Davis, who's younger, of course, uh, but Jesse Jackson, um, of course, the now the, the late uh, John Lewis, Representative Lewis, um, and Dr. King himself, like uh, Reverend Vivian doesn't really ever get on the national stage like that. Hmm. And he was he seems to be OK with that. Um, he doesn't seek public office. He, um, in the, you know, in the seventies and, um, he moves back to Atlanta and he gets involved in doing these workshops on nonviolence and that kind of, he's more of a regional figure at that point. And the obscurity I think is just, you know, we live in a society that, I mean, aside from being anti-intellectual at times, it's also incredibly disposable. So if you're not constantly being in front of the camera or in social media, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we forget. And it's easier to put our, wrap our minds around a movement of a person who also was a symbol in, in, in Dr. King, where you forget about the Fannie Lou Hamers, you forget about the Ella Bakers and the C.T. Vivians and the Diane Nashes, uh, because it that starts to get into the muck, right? The complexities, the nuance of, of these people's humanity and their commitment, uh, unshakable commitment to freedom and justice. Um, so I think that that's probably a large reason that we don't 
have a better knowledge of him. The other thing is to say, uh, you know, after, so I should say it this way, I was reintroduced to him through the documentary series, right? Mm -hmm. Eyes and the Prize is my introduction to C.T. Vivian at nine years old. I come back to him in 19. Um, and, and, you know, that's when I recognized who his name was. But he's not constantly in the press cycle as some of these other names would be, even like Andrew Young, for instance, right? They, they go on to take these public, um, you know, types of uh, roles in, in, in life as in public service, and he doesn't really do that. But he continued to, to advocate, and he continued to fight for this cause, and, and it has been great remembering his life here with you today. So, Vernon Mitchell Jr., I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. And Vernon, again, is a lecturer in American Culture Studies at Washington University. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWNU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.